Today at Reader's Corner, part two of a conversation with Stuart Reed, author of The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Today we're going to be talking with Stuart Reed, the author of The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. We had the opportunity last week to listen to his conversation with me about the book, but we didn't get through it all. And it's an exciting book. It's nonfiction, but it reads like a Cold War spy thriller. It all starts in 1960. That's when the Congo was set free from Belgium, one of 17 countries to gain independence from ruling European powers. Last week, we ended our discussion with the execution of Patrice Lumumba by Congolese troops uh, with the help of a lot of other actors. If we could begin, uh, Stuart Reed, uh, with a summary uh, of your commentary on how Lumumba's fate was sealed by these actors, including the U.S. and its officials, um, give us a, a little sketch of what we covered in this first half. Yeah, so Lumumba, who was prime minister of Congo, um, he was then overthrown in a coup and thrown in jail but still the Americans who thought he was too pro-Soviet for their liking wanted to get rid of him. Um, Mobutu, Lumumba's enemy by now, wanted to get rid of him. And so Lumumba is sent to the breakaway province of Katanga, where everyone knows he's going to die. Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief at the time in Congo, is informed of this plan to transfer Lumumba. He decides to say nothing and keep this news to himself, not tell his superiors in Washington. He decides also to not try and talk Mobutu out of this plan, even though he had enormous influence at the time with him. And so Lumumba, because of that green light that the Americans give via Devlin, Lumumba is sent to this province and and shot dead shortly after arrival. So there were a lot of different actors who contributed to Lumumba's murder. Um, the Belgians, Mobutu and his fellow henchmen, but also the CIA. And I think it's important to note that even, you know, 63 years later. Well, let's, let's pick it up from there. And um, I, I must say I was really taken by a letter that you insert in the book. Uh, I said when we talked about this uh, last week that Lumumba's charisma reminded me of Martin Luther King Jr. And the letter that Lumumba writes to his wife uh, I, I just wanted to read a little bit of it because I think it it so much does remind one of what's going on in the civil rights movement. History will this is this is Lumumba writing to his wife, but as you point out, Stuart, he's really writing to his his nation, his new nation, uh, and he knows that um, that he's going to be executed. Uh, history will one day have its say. It will not be the history taught in the United Nations. Washington, Paris, or Brussels, however, but the history taught in the countries that have rid themselves of colonialism and its puppets. Africa will write its own history in both north and south of the Sahara. It will be a history full of glory and dignity. I suppose you could say that this second half of our discussion of your book, The Lumumba Plot, is evidence that that didn't really work out uh, because throughout Right. Most of the history from this point on, and that's what you and I are going to talk about here in the next few minutes, 
uh, things have not gone well for the Congo. Let, let's begin with something that uh, has to do with with Kennedy and Eisenhower. Uh, Eisenhower, uh, I come across with the impression in your book that um, Eisenhower is much different than the World War II commander who was in charge, but instead kind of a cranky guy at the end of his public life who liked playing golf really more than he uh, enjoyed being president. And and as you pointed out in, in our previous discussion, um, he actually leaves the the impression with his his staff that he's he's okay with Lumumba's assassination or execution, whatever you want to call it. Um, Kennedy, on the other hand, uh, has a different take because he's in a campaign to become president and he has a particular interest in Africa, it seems, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that surprised me was how much Africa was a campaign issue in 1960. It's yeah. sort of impossible to imagine it today becoming, you know, I don't think the word Africa has been mentioned on a debate stage anytime recently, um, or at least very uh, infrequently. And so Kennedy was trying to position himself as, you know, more energetic than the Eisenhower administration and more energetic than Richard Nixon, his Republican opponent. And he was also trying to portray himself as allying the United States with the aspirations of Africans and other people in what was then called the third world who were about to become independent or were already independent. And so he criticized the Eisenhower administration for sort of being late to recognize that African nationalism was a force to be reckoned with, that we needed to be on the side of these people, not on the side of their European colonial oppressors. And so Kennedy hammered this theme throughout the campaign season. Now, there was also a more cynical reason he did this. So Kennedy needed to win white Southern voters to win re-election. That was clear. But he also wanted African-American voters. So you can't talk about civil rights if you're Kennedy because you worry what that'll, the message that will send to white Southern Democrats. But you don't want to turn off your African-American voters. So the genius bit of political triangulation that he and his advisors cooked up was to talk about Africa. This was a matter of foreign policy. White Southern voters didn't care what U.S. policy toward Africa was, but Kennedy was able to trot it out as a campaign line and talk about um, supporting the aspirations of, of people in Africa. And so this was their way of sort of being able to have their cake and eat it too. The immediate aftermath of Lumumba's execution in two ways. First of all, uh, his death triggered other executions. What was the size of that? And then just the civil war. How long did the civil war last and what kind of toll did that exact from the Congolese people? Yeah. So Lumumba was killed on January 17th, 1961, although the news didn't come out for a few weeks. It was, wasn't until February that the rest of the world learned. And that, as you mentioned, sparked a series of reprisal killings where Lumumba's allies were um, had gathered in his stronghold of a city called Stanleyville, which is now Kisangani in the east of Congo. And they, uh, his supporters executed hostages they had taken from the, from Mobutu's government. And then the opposite occurred. So there was this sort of bloodbath. At that point, though, there was, um, you know, a year or two of relative calm. 
the United Nations eventually had to use force to go into Katanga and take that over, the, the breakaway province of Katanga. Um, once they did that, then something else happened, which was there was, as you mentioned, the, the civil war in Congo in 1964, these rebellions where Lumumba's supporters rose up against the central government, which was controlled by Mobutu at that time. And Mobutu was struggling to exert control over his country, the country he now led. He relied heavily on the CIA, which set up what was then the largest paramilitary operation in history. They created an air force for Congo, essentially. Um, and so only in 1965 did the Congo crisis, as it was known, really come to an end. And it ended with Mobutu, this military dictator, you know, taking full control. And, and he would rule the country for 32 more years. We talked about Doug Hammarskjöld uh, in our in our first uh, conversation about your book, The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. Uh, he also plays a role later in your in your book where uh, he dies in a in a plane crash in the Congo, and there have been some who thought that somehow that plane was targeted. Why don't you give us your thoughts on what the best evidence is of what really happened there? Yeah. So in September 1961, Hammarskjöld is flying to a town called Ndola, which is just outside the Congolese border, just outside Katanga. And he's going there because he's trying to arrange a ceasefire between his UN forces and the secessionist forces in Katanga. Um, the UN had unleashed this operation to sort of expel Belgian mercenaries and finally exert control over this breakaway province that had gone south and there was fighting in the streets and it wasn't working. So he was flying there to offer a ceasefire and to have his forces stop. And that's important context because uh, someone has likened it to, it's as if he were Chamberlain on the way to Munich to appease Hitler. And so there are a lot of conspiracy theories that the Belgians or um, white mercenaries in Katanga or the Katangan local forces themselves had something to do with the plane crash that killed Hammarskjöld. So he's flying there and his plane um, clips the trees of a forest and is engulfed in flames and everyone is killed. These conspiracy theories are, there's a problem of a motive, I think, in that um, no one really had an interest in Hammarskjöld dying at that moment. Look, it's it's been... 62 years. It's, I think at a certain point, it's now truly unknowable what exactly happened. And I'm not ruling out that there were, um, there was foul play. I just think that, you know, Occam's razor suggests that the simplest explanation is the most likely. And in 1961, planes crashed all the time and pilot mm -hmm. error was the most common cause. So, you know, there are entire other books written about this. It's not the subject of my book. I talk about it for a page or two, mm -hmm. but, um, I think the conspiracy theories, in my view, aren't really convincing. You know, that reminds me of a slight commentary you made at the very, very end of your book when you were talking about the sources you used and you raised the issue of the United States declassification of documents system or process and the fact that um, there's not enough of it, that there's so much material. I mean, could it be that if there was more declassification of documents around that time, this may be one of the issues that we'd know more about. Possibly, but I 
I think it's unlikely. I think if there were declassification, we would certainly learn a lot more about the CIA's operations against Lumumba. Yeah. But um, one of the more ridiculous theories, conspiracy theories, is that the CIA had something to do with Hammarskjöld's death, which is just, I mean, that's ridiculous that, that mm-hmm. the CIA would try and kill the Secretary General of the UN along with right. you know, Swedish uh, staff on board the plane. Um, there were Americans on the plane. So, you know, that, that, to my mind, is not a plausible conspiracy theory. Yeah. But look, I think truly nothing should be classified 62 years after the, effect, the yeah. fact. I cannot think of a single thing that would be worthy of protection at this point. Mm. So in my opinion, the U.S. government should open everything from that era. Let us see what exactly the CIA did and did not do. Um, you know, Let the historians have at it. Democracies are defined by openness and accountability and it's a sign of confidence not weakness to open up the files and and allow history to be dealt with honestly well one thing we certainly don't have to wait for when it comes to declassification is uh the role that the cia plays in this whole mess uh we've already talked uh last week about the fact that uh they were going to poison uh, Lumumba, uh, at least they were going to attempt to do so. It did not happen. Uh, and then later in your book, I, I come across a little characterization of the CIA agent Larry Devlin, who again uh, is a key player in this, where he talks about the U.S. keeping Mobuto, I think it was, in power thanks to, quote, constant vote buying. It's it's like, excuse me? You mean like rigging an election? like what we're so appalled by in Georgia these days, uh, the CIA itself was doing back in the day? Yeah, it was it was buying the votes of members of parliament specifically. So as I mentioned, in 1965, Mobutu takes charge completely and there is no parliament to worry about. But for this period from 1960 to 1965, there was a parliament and uh, you know it wasn't powerful and didn't exert any independent checks on him. But the CIA did need to make sure that it didn't. So they, um, Devlin was, you know, funneling uh, suitcases of cash into the hands of, of members of parliament. Um, the idea was that Mobutu had to be supported. He was, quote, our man in Congo, and no one else could be in charge. It didn't matter that Mobutu was a military leader. It didn't matter that he was not actually politically popular. He was our man. And so the CIA supported him. You know, over the years, it went beyond the CIA and became a more overt form of assistance throughout the Cold War, where the US was lavishing his regime with aid. Um, and only when the Cold War ended did the US did the US stop propping up Mobutu. And then lo and behold, within not that many years, his country collapsed altogether. His regime collapsed. He needed that American support. So in 1975, the Church Committee investigates the intelligence community, and the Lumumba plot is one of the things it looks uh, into. Uh, we've interviewed uh, James Risen on on this show some time ago about his new book, The Last Honest Man, which is the story of Frank Church and that Church Committee. Uh, what comes out of that? Remind our listeners who either may not remember or may not have read uh, The Last Honest Man. What comes out of that as far as their look into the Lumumba plot? So the church committee 
I mean, they were looking into all sorts of CIA malfeasance, but they decided, and I believe it was Frank Church himself who decided this, that the most attention-getting thing to tackle first were the assassination plots. So beyond Lumumba, the CIA or the U.S. government more broadly had had been alleged to have been involved in you know, efforts against Fidel Castro, against the president of the Dominican Republic, um, involved in the coup that killed President Ngo Dinh, Ngo Dinh Diem in uh, South Vietnam. And they systematically looked at all these things. And for Lumumba, that was when we really, when the public first learned of um, what the CIA's role was. Now, interestingly, it sort of let the CIA off the hook in this regard, because it focused on the poison plot and it found that, you know, although the CIA tried to kill Lumumba, it, because the poisons were never delivered, it wasn't involved in Lumumba's actual death. The church committee, to be fair, had, you know, a relatively small staff and only a number of months to complete its work. So it wasn't possible for it to do, you know, to really get to the bottom of everything. Um, but it, what it sort of glossed over was the CIA's role in approving the transfer of Lumumba, that key moment when he was sent to a province where everyone knew he would die. And um, and Larry Devlin, the CIA station chief, greenlit that. Um, so the CIA did, in the end, have blood on its hands. Um, the church committee didn't conclude that, but it did dig up, you know, a lot of useful information and went through the CIA cables at the time and um, unearthed a lot of wrongdoing regarding Lumumba and um, other leaders. And there was an executive order that came out of the uh, church committee. Tell us about that. Yeah, there was an executive order that, um, you know, at least on paper, banned political assassinations. Um, you know, of course, there would be a, uh, starting under George W. Bush and, and continued by Obama, an extensive drone program that was, you know, assassinating alleged terrorists. But the, the executive order was meant to stop the type of thing that was targeted against Lumumba. How did Belgium deal with its role in Lumumba's execution? So, yeah, I mean, the Belgians were involved in several ways. Um, I mean, first and more broadly, like the Americans, they had been undermining Lumumba for months and supporting his rivals and um, involved in, in pushing him from power. Um, also, there were Belgian officers who were sort of in charge the night Lumumba was murdered, and they were the ones that gave the orders to the local Katangan soldiers to to kill Lumumba. So Belgium was involved. Um, and, you know, one of the weirder and crazier aspects of the story I write about is how, um, what, what happened to the remains of Lumumba. So he was shot, he was buried in the ground, he was unburied, buried again, and then exhumed yet again. And then his body was dissolved in sulfuric acid. I mean, it's this very gruesome thing. But one of the Belgians, a sort of police commissioner who was in charge of disposing of the body, actually kept uh, two of Lumumba's teeth and a, a finger bone. And he kept these, took them back to Belgium, claimed he had thrown them into the North Sea. It turned out he hadn't, which the world learned in 2016 when his daughter gave an interview to a Belgian magazine and they asked about the teeth. And she said, Oh, I think, I think we have a molar around here. And she went and produced the tooth. Now, Belgium then that set off this process where Belgium, uh, you know, sees the tooth and then 
after a number of years, returned it to the Lumumba family, you know, offering some sort of closure and some sort of, you know, implicit apology. But, um, I mean, Belgium, like many other countries, is sort of dealt with its past only belatedly and half-heartedly. Um, and, you know, a lot of this came to the fore during the Black Lives Matter protests, um, where, you know, you'd have statues of King Leopold II finally removed. Um, but now the tooth is, is, has been returned to Congo, you know, it's given to his family and it's in a mausoleum in the capital of Congo, Kinshasa. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Stuart Reed, author of The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. As far as the U.S. role in this plot, uh, there is a moment in your book where Eisenhower is uh, asked if he wants to see Lumumba, who was visiting America at the time. And uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Eisenhower decides against that. At the end of your book, you raise the question, what could we have done differently? And um, I believe you, you ask the question whether or not that is something that could have been done differently, and could that have made a difference? In Ike's defense, he was he was actually out of town during Lumumba's visit. So the, the Congolese certainly thought they had been deliberately snubbed. In fact, this visit was sort of last minute, sprung on the Americans and Eisenhower's out of town. But um, I do want to talk a little bit about the counterfactual. And so one of the things, you know, if Lumumba and Eisenhower had met, perhaps they would have, uh, you know, had a little bit more of a human understanding. I think it's probably harder to order the assassination of someone you've never met in person. Um, but then again, perhaps they would have butted heads and, and this wouldn't have changed anything. Um, but when we're talking about what could have been in the Congo, what was the alternate policy that the U.S. didn't follow? I think it's pretty easy to make the argument that events would have played out much better than they did. So the U.S. could have decided to work with Lumumba, um, treat him as sort of a neutral foreign leader who was not entirely reliable and pro-American, not as you know stable and constant as one would have liked, but basically able to be dealt with, um, included in a political coalition. This, in fact, was what the early Kennedy administration policy was. It ended up being overtaken by events because Lumumba was dead by the time Kennedy took office. But there was a brief moment where that was what the Kennedy people were planning, at least some of them. Um, so there was a, a future for Congo where Lumumba stayed in power and uh, the country was not, you know, a Jeffersonian democracy in the heart of Africa, but it was, you know, basically stable um, and workable. What ended up happening was so bad, so terrible that almost anything would have been better. So I don't think you have to try that hard to construct a alternate scenario that that's much better than the terrible one that happened. Very well put. So you've already commented on the fact that Joseph Mobutu uh, lasted, what, 33 years? Is that what it was? Until 1997, yeah. yeah. And then along comes Joseph Kabila, if I'm pronouncing his name right, and he's in office for 17 years. How best to describe the state of the Congo by the time he leaves? Yeah, so Mobutu is overthrown. His, his regime collapsed. He's overthrown. He flees into exile and dies of cancer not that long after. This is in 1997. Mm -hmm. Then the leader of that invasion, of that rebellion that took power, is a man named Laurent Kabila. He lasts until 2001, at which point he is assassinated, you know, becoming the second 
leader of Congo to have been felled by a bullet. His son takes power, Joseph Kabila, and as you said, stays in power for 17 years until elections in 2018 finally lead to him leaving office. Now, that may sound like a happy story. You know, after 17 years of authoritarian rule, the country has elections and someone else takes power. What actually happened, in fact, was was not so um, encouraging, which is that there was a candidate who won those elections in 2018, who won the most votes. He was not the man that was announced president. It was a different candidate, someone who sort of made a deal with Kabila. So um, even to this day, Congo has not had a peaceful and democratic transfer of power since its independence. And then there's the issue of corruption. Uh, you had a personal experience in a taxi cab ride, uh, which perhaps was a small sample of the corruption rampant in the country. Yeah, I mean, almost a, a, a meaningless small experience, <laughs> but as many people have, I mean, I think this applies broadly to many places in the developing world, but, you know, having to bribe a, a traffic cop to avoid getting hassled is a sort of regular experience. And I think also it's important to point out that it's not because that individual traffic officer is evil, but it's, you know, that's his method of income. Basically, the salaries are so low that the way you make money as a civil servant or any government employee in Congo, as in many other countries, is through exacting bribes here and there. So there there really is a undeniably prevalent corruption in Congo today, um, which you, you will notice within minutes of landing at the airport there. Well, I have to ask the question, although it seems pretty obvious to me, when you look at the sweep of history that we've covered from the 50s to the 60s and then your just uh, recent update, did America learn anything about Africa and Congo in particular? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. And I think um, what is so interesting is that the view inside the U.S. government about its operation in Congo was that it was a success. And I get it in some sense. In this very narrow Cold War logic, a leader who was seen as potentially pro-Soviet was sidelined and killed, and a pro-American dictator was put in his place. You know, it's the Cold War. That's that's what it's all about. Um, only in the narrowest logic can that really be viewed as a success. For one thing, Mobutu was not particularly pro-American. He twice kicked out the U.S. ambassador for showing insufficient respect to him. He invited in North Korean military advisors at one point. So it was not as if the United States got this pliant, capable leader to run the country. He was constantly causing problems. Um, and then, of course, most important, the Congolese people paid a huge price. They had an unrepresentative, unelected military dictator in charge of their country for more than 30 years. He he destroyed the country and he was supported from day one, literally, by the Americans. We talked in our earlier conversation about this new dimension of a, of a Cold War. Uh, it was China and, or excuse me, the United States and Russia then. It's now the United States and China in many respects. I mean, I understand, of course, that we're indirectly at, still at war with Russia regarding Ukraine. Uh, but when it comes to Africa and the Congo in particular, you've, you've cited the mineral-rich earth on which these very poor people are trotting. Uh, you've named those minerals. 
uh, I'm afraid I'm not familiar with what, what's going on today. Who has access to those minerals as we speak? And, and what's the future hold for the, uh, the access that, uh, that we need for those? Well, a lot of Western, including American companies, have left Congo in recent years, viewing it understandably as sort of just too unstable and unreliable a place to do business. Um, you know, too much corruption, too much risk. Um, as a result, the Chinese have taken advantage of that and they are, they own a lot of the, the mining concerns or partly on at least. Uh, so, you know, I would say today in Congo, the United States is still the preferred outside partner, but China has certainly gained ground in Congo. Um, Russia, for its part, has sent uh, weapons, this is a few years ago, sent did an arms deal with Congo. So there, there is Chinese and Russian influence in Africa. And, and in that respect, it is evocative of the Cold War. I think, though, that it's important to not repeat the mistake that America made during the Cold War, which was seeing Soviet ghosts everywhere. And today, the equivalent would be, you know, seeing the specter of Chinese and Russian influence ever, mm -hmm. everywhere. Um, those two countries are not universally popular in Africa. They are often, you know, shooting themselves in the foot. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has taken um, enormous amount of grain off the market and, and, uh, with Africans being one of the, the people suffering the most. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of Chinese media organizations in Africa, but they're still way less popular than American and European media organizations. So for all the talk of Russia and China showing newfound interest in Africa, I think, you know, their actual role is a little bit more limited than many people have argued. Well, I think I have time for one more question, and it's, it's just going to be about the U.S. relationship to the current president. Uh, I believe he's announced he's running for re-election, and I also believe that uh, he threw out a lot of people that he thought would get in his way and put his own loyalists and cronies in. Uh, where's the U.S. with this current Congo presidency? Yeah, well, the U.S. has a bit of a dilemma in Congo. Um, so in 2019, as I mentioned earlier, well, there were elections in 2018, and then in 2019, the current president, Felix Chisikedi, took office. And the problem was he wasn't the guy who actually won elections. What did the U.S. do? It issued a statement basically endorsing his victory. So that was a, you know, among people who follow U.S. policy towards Congo, this was a controversial decision. Um, and it really reflected this sense that, you know, we need to promote short-term stability and work with the person who's in power and not rock the boat and go along. The problem, of course, is when you endorse a stolen election, you're you're only kicking the can down the road and creating longer-term problems. The fundamental problem in Congo is a broken social contract between the people and its government. And so to fix that, I would argue the United States should more firmly take the side of democracy. But it's tough because you do have to work with the person who ends up being in charge. Uh, this, of course, was the, the dilemma during the Cold War. Well, Stuart Reed, I want to thank you for joining us today and last week on Reader's Corner. And thank you for the book, The Lumumba Plot, The Secret History of the CIA and a Cold War Assassination. It's just an excellent treatment about a piece of American and African history that is still so relevant today. Thanks for joining us, Stuart. Really appreciate it. It's great it. talking with you. Thank you. 
Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. <laughs>